Please be seated. Amen. I had to smile when Connor referenced peeps. It's that time of year, right? Oh, I got, I, got, I got one reaction like, oh, and then other reactions. When we lived in Minnesota, we would go to the Mall of America periodically, and they had a store dedicated to peeps. Now you kind of look at that and you say to yourself, how would that store survive? You know, I would think peeps are great. They kind of seasonal and then they kind of expanded to Thanksgiving or Christmas, I guess. So, but I don't know how they do all the time. But I, I'm, I'm one of those ones who looks forward to them coming out. I, I kind of like them, but oh well. Well, today is Palm Sunday. Today is that day when Jesus came into town. And as Jesus came into town, the crowds surged around him and they started to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they celebrated and rejoiced Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Now with all of that, and with all that celebration, there's so much that's coming behind Jesus' entrance. So, as you say what's coming behind that, it's not just Jesus coming into town, and it's not just a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples about going and preparing an upper room, about going and finding the donkey. There's more to it than that going on, because there's a whole lot going on in the heart and in the mind of the crowd. So we want to look at a little bit of that and think a little bit about that this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll jump into it. Father, I just thank you this morning for the opportunity for us to spend time in your word. For us to think about the importance of the message of Jesus. And Father, as we spend this time, we would ask that you'd be honored and glorified in our time. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I want us to start this morning in Genesis, but we're going to start in a different place than where we have been. So we're going to double chapter 11. We're going to go to chapter 22. We're going to go far, not too far away from, from chapter 11. We're still, we're still having a conversation about Abraham. <clears throat> but this is the first of three events I want us to look at and think about this morning. Three, I think, big events where we see God working and the promise of God still sustaining even though big events are going on. So Genesis chapter 22. And if you look at that, you're going to see this caption, the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, we know that Isaac wasn't sacrificed, but let's look at this a little bit and we're going to see what's going on. So Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read from 1 to 18. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, pause for a second, just keep that right there. God is testing Abraham. Now, I want to identify something that's really, really important. God does test us. He doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. Here's the big difference. Temptation entices us into sin. Temptation whispers in our ear, and it says to us, this behavior, which you know is wrong, is really good. 
And if you pursue it, and if you chase it, it's going to satisfy you. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to like it. You should do it. So this is the conversation that the serpent had with Eve regarding the fruit in the garden that God said not to eat. This evil one whispered in her ear, you'll like it. Doesn't that fruit look delicious? And didn't God say that when you eat it, other things are going to happen? Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to understand certain things. Wouldn't that be great? That's temptation. God does not do that. But God does test us. And most of us understand testing. If we've been in school, we come to that period of the week or we come to that period of the semester where the teacher says to everyone as they come into the classroom, it's time for a pop quiz. Or you sit down and you say, the teacher says, it's time for the, the subject test. Or it's time for your quarterly test. And what is the whole idea of the test? It tests what you know. It tests what you understand. It tests your comprehension. And part of what God does when he tests is he's testing to see Abraham, are you really committed to me? Are you really following me? Are you really devoted? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? A test measures something, whereas temptation entices us to do something that's wrong. And what's going on right here is God is testing the devotion of Abraham. Here I am, Abraham answered. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, this only son that God promised, and this only son that Abraham said, how am I going to have a son? Do you know how old I am? And do you know how old my wife is? And God said, you're going to have a son. And God gave them an amazing son. He was the one through whom promise would flow. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He said, Son, you're going to carry this. My boys understand this as we would heat with wood and other kinds of stuff. I gave them their various jobs to do and various tasks to do. I didn't do it all myself. I delegated. And Abraham is delegating. In his hand he took the the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father and said, My father, and Abraham replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire, the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. And when they arrived at the place God told them about, Abraham built up the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. 
And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And tradition says that this is where the temple was built. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because in, and he's repeating and reaffirming what has been said in the past. Because you have done these things and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And we understand the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gate of the of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command the nation of Israel was looking at the offspring of David and or, excuse me Abraham and they were looking at the promises of God and they knew that God was sending a redeemer God was sending the Messiah through the line of Abraham and everyone would look back at the words that are here, then you all nations will be blessed. And they would look at the promise of God captured in those words. But this is one of those big pivotal moments, those big pivotal times. Why? Because God had already said, Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. And Abraham, it's not going to be through Ishmael that my blessing is going to come. Abraham, my blessing is going to come through Isaac. It's, it's he's the one through whom all of my promise and all of my blessing is going to flow. It's through him. And so he is looking at his son as a pathway and a channel through which God is going to work, and yet God is testing. God is measuring. Now, a number of things stand out here as I look at this. Again, you see the reminder of sacrifice. And that's already been established. But I appreciate the conversation Abraham had with the son. God will provide. And God did. God provided the sacrifice needed for that event. And it was not his son. But I want you to understand that as Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem... The, the reality of the fact that God will provide was going on. Because a sacrifice was going to need to be made. And the indication, the hint that the Son is coming, that the sacrifice is coming, is being laid and communicated. The nation of Israel didn't understand yet. But the sacrifice of the Son was Jesus. They didn't get that. And they didn't understand that two-part process of first comes the Messiah to provide redemption, and then later will come Messiah to establish the kingdom. They didn't understand that yet. But God lays a hint as to the things that are going to take place. And that sacrifice needed to be made. It 
had to be made. Or else there would not be forgiveness of sin. And it had to be the right sacrifice. Or that sacrifice for sin would not be sufficient for all. It would be sufficient for one, but not for all. We're at a point where we are looking at the possibility of the promises of God coming to an end. But they didn't come to an end. Rather, they are reaffirmed. In the nation of Israel, the crowd, as they're shouting Hosanna and celebrating Jesus as he is coming down the street, have echoes of the promises of God to Abraham ringing in their ear that we are blessed. We are the promised seed of Abraham through us. or through, through We are blessed through Abraham, but we are also going to impact our world because of Abraham. And all of that is part of the underlying reality as the crowd celebrates Jesus. There's another area that stands out. That area where we think everything is lost. It's all done. It's finished. Pull the curtains, roll up the carpets, roll up the sidewalk, close the door, hang, closed, out of business, on a door, walk away. 2 Kings chapter 25. It says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. He laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until Zedekiah's 11th year. So they're under siege for over a year. No one's going in. No one's coming out. No new products are coming in. No food is coming in. They are stuck. They're surrounded and there's no way for them to get out and no one's coming in. By the ninth day of the fourth month, it's now a year and a half, the famine was so severe in the city that common people had no food. Then the city was broken into, and during this whole time, the Babylonians are around there, and they have all they need to eat, and they're slowly doing things to break into the city. They're not in a hurry. Why throw yourselves against the wall? We got time. They're going to get starved, and it's a year and a half. They just need to have a force out there to hold them in place, and they slowly build ramps, and they slowly do things to knock down the walls and, and break in. And why do it when they're healthy and hale? Let's wait until they're hungry, they have no energy, and they're just going to hold up their hands and surrender. Then the city was broken into, and all the warriors fled at night by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans surrounded the city. And and the king made his way along the route to the Arabah. And the Chaldean army pursued him and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah's entire army left him and scattered. 
the Chaldeans seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down the walls surrounding the city. The captain of the guards deported the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, and all of the rest of the population. But the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. Everything is destroyed. Just kind of wrap your head around this a little bit. We don't understand this because it's not how we do war, but have any of you seen any of the pictures of of some of the fighting that's going on? Okay. Have you seen some of the pictures of what some of the cities look like? Just bombed out nothingness. Buildings destroyed. Walls blown off. Doors blown off. Windows blown out. Just destruction. And you look at that, piles of rubble. And you say to yourself, who's going to come back? And who's going to live here? They're done. It's, it's history. It's kaput. It's finished. It's all destroyed. And that's what's happening to Jerusalem. It is all destroyed. Everything's being burned. Everything's being torn down. The wall's being knocked down. Everything's being looted. Whatever can be taken is being picked up and carted away. It goes on. It says, Now the Chaldeans broke into pieces the bronze pillars of the Lord's temple, the water carts and the bronze basin, which were the Lord's temple, and carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the priest's service. The captain of the guard took away the fire pans and the sprinkling basins, whatever was gold or silver. As for the two pillars, the one basin and the water carts that Solomon had made for the Lord's temple, the weight of the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. One pillar was 27 feet tall and had a bronze capital on the top of it. The the capital, encircled by grating and pomegranate of bronze, stood five feet high. The second pillar was the same, with its own grating. The captain of the guard also took away Sariah, the chief priest, Sephaniah, the priest of the second rank and the the three doorkeepers from the city he took a court official who had been appointed over the warriors five trusted royal aides found in the city, the secretary to the commander of the army who enlisted the people in the land for military duty and 60 men from the common people who were found within the city he took them and brought them to the king then the king put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath so Judas went into exile from the land. All these people that led 
all these people in charge, executed. No, they weren't carted off into captivity. Everyone else was carted off into captivity. But the people in charge, people with knowledge, understanding, understood the history, taken out, put to death. Why would this be in the mind of the crowds as they shout Hosanna? The sacking and the destroying of Jerusalem and the nation being carted off into captivity. Why? Because God restored them to the land. Because the promise was not over. And a nation learned a lesson that they need to walk with God and know God. And so they're shouting Hosanna because despite some of the most horrific and horrible and terrible things that have happened to them as a nation, God has preserved them. Seventy years later, probably at this point in time, about 50 years later, they're being restored to a broken and battered land. Those that get carted away don't necessarily come back, but their children do, their descendants do. They come back to ruins. But they rebuild a life. They rebuild a city. They rebuild a community. They rebuild a nation. Because the promises of God remain. Because God has promised that he is going to send the Messiah. God has promised that he is going to send them a king who will reign. God has promised that one day they are going to rise up and lead the nations. And they have walked through and traveled through the most devastating, the, the, the most horrible of days, and yet God has still preserved them. And so they stand at the curb of the road and they see Jesus coming in and they shout Hosanna because the promises of God remain intact and the Messiah is still to come. We have one more passage to look at as we jokingly say the Italian prophet Malachi. You know, it's kind of funny. You really don't know how his name really was announced. So you listen to many Christians and they say, oh, they roll your eyes at you and you say, it's Malachi. You know, but I have no idea. It absolutely could have been called Malachi. They might have been Italian before there was Italians. You know, you don't really know how exactly it's pronounced. So whether it's Malachi or Malachi, you know, maybe the M.A. was silent. Maybe it was just Lachi. I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? But we read here in Malachi, verses 1 to 6. 
of chapter 3, and then we're going to drop down to chapter 4. But just pause for a second, play context, put some context. They have been back in the land about a hundred years. About a hundred years. They come back with celebration. There's a couple of revivals that take place. Periods where they're being called and you come back to the land and there's a fair amount of discouragement. So you're restored to the land, you're restored, but it's a lot of work. And the very few that remember that were there when they were young come back and see and, and they just tell the stories of, oh, the good old days. Do you ever hear the good old days from older folk? And they would tell you, oh, the temple we built, it's so horrible. It just doesn't compare at all to what was. Oh, the city walls, oh, it was just a beautiful city. And, and you kind of look around, there's one part you love to hear the stories, the other part you just want to kick them, because when you just be quiet and stop complaining about how terrible it is, because doggone it, we are working so hard here to try to make this great. And all you ever do is complain and, com- and tell us how terrible this is compared to what was. But they're back, and they're in the land. But part of what happens, and this is a constant perpetual danger, you have moments of excitement and moments of devotion and moments of passion and, and that you have that moment that surfaces but then as life kicks in it just kind of peels you down and pulls you down and you just kind of get going into the mundaneness of life and the passions and the commitments that you make and the devotions that you make they get they get leveled out in certain ways because just the press and the push of life and it's part of what's taking place in Jerusalem. It's part of what's taking place with the people of Israel. The excitement of coming back has waned because now it's just hard work and we're working hard to keep things moving and, and to rebuild and to restore and to refresh what has been destroyed. We have to pay stuff to the governor. We have obligations, responsibilities. There's been, Ezra's come back and Nehemiah has come back and there's been revivals and and reminders of the promises and there's been spiritual fervor kind of reestablished and and that kind of builds up but then it kind of levels out and kind of tapers off because the grind of life is still heavy. And Malachi, about a hundred years or so after the people come back, God sends him to speak and to minister to the nation of Israel. And he writes these words. He says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. 
He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. And part of the problem that's going on right now is they are not offering the kinds of sacrifices that God is calling them to offer. They're offering offering what is convenient. They're offering what is expedient. If they have something sickly and they know it's going to die, that's what they're going to bring to the temple to offer because they know it's going to die soon anyway. They don't want to bring healthy and vibrant livestock. They want to bring stuff that they know is not going to be healthy. They don't, they're not giving God their best. They're giving God their cast-offs. And so as God is talking to the nation and as Malachi is talking to this, he's identifying, guys, you're not going to be able to stand well. This is not going to bode well for you. Because I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppose the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Now why does he say he's going to come against those individuals just kick it back for a second verse is it there yeah very good I'm going to come against those individuals and why am I going to come against those individuals he's saying that because those are the things that are going on right then and there guys these are the things that are defining you because I am the Lord because I the Lord have not changed your descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Guys, I'm going to send the promised one. But when he shows up, he's going to bring justice. Now, you're not destroyed. You still exist because I will keep my word. Drop down to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Which is all of chapter 4. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Now, most of you have not grown up in dairy country or farm country. Some of us kind of understand what this looks like. And it's kind of fun to see a youngling getting its feet and bouncing and prancing and running around. Now, to put it in context... When you're in the car going to grandma and grandpa's and you have a six-year-old riding around in the back seat and you get there, you open the car and you let them out in the front yard and what do they do? (laughs) And they run and they jump and they roll. They, They got this energy that's got to move. And that's kind of what he's talking about. It's, woohoo, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's the exuberance. I'm free. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord 
of armies. He says, remember the instructions of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And when, and he will turn the hearts of fathers of their, to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise I will come and strike the land with a curse. And as he finishes those words, silence. For 400 years, silence. Now things changed in the land of Israel. But as they heard these words and as they saw the preservation of God for the nation of Israel, they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They listened to these words and they heard the promise of God that he was going to send the Messiah. And what took place during the 400 years between the ending of the Old Testament canon, there was silence. But the world continued. Soon after this, Alexander the Great marched across the continent and conquered the Medes and the Persians. And in is ushered Greek rule. And as Greek rule comes in, it comes in with a degree of oppressiveness, with a degree that seeks to tamp down and step on the neck of the nation of Israel. But what bubbles up and surfaces up out of the, the, the life of Israel in the heart of the nation of Israel is this passion for the coming of the Messiah. And they start to push back against Greece. And they, and they start to assert themselves. Then Rome starts to assert itself. nation of Israel kind of develops a relationship as a, as a territory of Rome. But still bubbling in the surface and, and leaking all through the nation is this passion and this interest and this hope and this yearning for the Messiah. And all of that feeds into this day as Jesus rides through the crowds. They don't fully understand and comprehend all of the things that God is trying to communicate. They just know the promised one is coming. But here's the problem. You've ever had this happen to you? You have a sense of anticipation that something's going to happen. But as you have this sense of anticipation with this thing that's going to happen, you have a set of expectations. And therefore it starts to influence and it starts to flavor what you are looking for. It starts to influence and flavor what you want, what you hope for, what you expect.
And then when it arrives, and it's not quite what you anticipated or expected, how do you respond? You don't always respond gratefully. You don't always respond enthusiastically. Sometimes you respond with anger. Sometimes you respond with frustration. Sometimes you respond with disgust. But the sense of anticipation of the coming Messiah filled the community. But also with that was a whole series of expectations over what they were looking for Jesus. But Jesus was not coming at that point in time to be the reigning king. Jesus was first coming to be the suffering Messiah. He was first coming to be the sacrifice for sin. And the crowd didn't get it. Now the religious leaders... They didn't want the Messiah to show up. They didn't want the Messiah to show up at all because the Messiah showing up would throw everything into chaos because they kind of had developed and created a little good system. They kind of had this partnership with Rome. It was working well. They kind of had this gig going on down at the temple. They were making good money. Things were kind of moving along well. Things were smooth. Things were good. Everyone was happy. Rome was not unhappy with us. We had some idiots that were pushing stuff. But, you know, Rome was kind of keeping them in check. And things were kind of good for us. That's what the leaders are saying, particularly the leaders in the temple. They didn't want the Messiah showing up at all. So as the crowd is shouting Hosanna, as the crowd is celebrating the arrival of Jesus, the religious leaders are there gritting their teeth because they need the Messiah to show up like someone needs a hole in the head. They don't need him there at all. He is an interference, he is a problem, and he needs to be dealt with. And that week is going to turn like crazy. But all of these attitudes, all of this sense of anticipation is feeding into that crowd as Jesus walks, or as he rides. I'm not sure if it's the Via Della Rosa, but as he rides into Jerusalem. All of that pent-up expectation, all of that pent-up desire gets released. But then come all of these expectations. And is he the one? And will he do this? And will he do that? Now, what are your expectations for Jesus? What are your expectations? One of the things I want you to understand is that as Jesus came into town, Jesus was not there to fulfill the crowd's expectations. That's not who he was there for. And that's not who he was serving. He was serving the Father and he was pursuing the Father's expectations. 
temptations. And Jesus was coming to be that sacrifice. Now, just as Isaac brought, or just as Abraham brought Isaac as that sacrifice, the Father sent Jesus as that sacrifice. But Jesus was also coming as a willing sacrifice. But we also need to understand that that sacrifice had to be made. All of us have seen various movies where there comes, we, I'm talking about these war movies and those kinds of things, where there's this big battle going on and, and as this crowd, this, this group of soldiers needs to escape or needs to get out, someone needs to kind of stand at the door and guard the door because if someone doesn't stand at the door and guard the door, someone has to be that sacrifice so that everyone else can get out. You know those kinds of stories we talk about. All sorts of purple, not purple hearts, but recognition for honor and valor has taken place over the years. Why? Because of the sacrificial sacrifice, that giving sacrifice of one soldier for another so that life can be preserved. And that's what's going on, and it's about to take place on Friday. A sacrifice needs to be made. And the father has given his son, but the son has also willingly come. Very different than Abraham and Isaac. As Abraham took Isaac to the mountain, Isaac is saying to dad, Dad, where is the sacrifice? I don't know where the sacrifice is. And dad is saying, don't worry, son, God will provide. But he didn't sit down and have a conversation with Isaac before they left to say, okay, son, now listen, I want to explain something to you. I had a dream last night and God appeared to me and God has asked me to offer a sacrifice and Isaac, it's you. That conversation didn't take place. Isaac wasn't being given the option to consider, am I willing to allow myself to be sacrificed for the Father? He, that, that option wasn't given, but that is absolutely what's going on with Jesus. Jesus is coming, but Jesus is willingly going. And as you will look at the events that will start to unfold this week, Jesus, Scripture says, he fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. He looked at Jerusalem and set his course. Jesus didn't say, ooh, if I stay around Jerusalem, I'm going to get sacrificed. I think it's time to go to Egypt. I think it's time to visit Italy. I think it's maybe time to go see where things, what things looked like in Babylon when, when, when the nation was captive there. It's time to do some sightseeing. He didn't do that. He fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem and began to focus in and say, I have a mission. I have a purpose. Jesus was given and sent by the Father, but Jesus also willingly said, I need to go. Why? Because a sacrifice needed to be made and if that sacrifice was not made then everything and everyone is lost then no one will know forgiveness no one will know hope no one will have a right relationship with the father because the reality of sin will not be resolved and the problem of sin will not be addressed So the events of this week coming up, Jesus is fixing his eyes on the cross. He's not seeking to hide or dodge or weave or avoid. He is looking straight at that cross. He knows exactly what's going to take place. He knows exactly where he is going because this is the very reason for which he has come. Because the Messiah has truly arrived. The promised one 
that God preserved the nation of Israel for as they were carted off into captivity. And the promised one that was going to come and a nation that would rise up after that. He is here. The one that Malachi talks about. The one that's going to come and bring judgment. But first he's going to come and make a sacrifice of himself so that our sin issues can be addressed. The crowds had it right. As fickle as they were. As, they, as Jesus came in and they shouted and they celebrated, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the Messiah. They had it right. Even though they changed their mind five days later. They had it absolutely right. But the reality is their expectations were not in alignment with what God had promised and said he would do. But Jesus' expectations were exactly in alignment with what the Father had called and asked him to do. And he was there to fulfill the work and to do the things that the Father had called him to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I am glad that Jesus came into Jerusalem and identified himself as the Messiah. And I am really super glad that Jesus came and he went to that cross. I am glad that Jesus did not hedge or budge or seek to avoid. I am super glad that the Father sent him, but I'm also super glad that Jesus said, yes, I will go. And he took our place on Calvary. As we look into this coming week, and as you kind of look towards Friday and the Good Friday service, as you look to Sunday and Easter Sunday morning, as we will celebrate the resurrection, I would encourage you to take some time reading through those accounts of this week and focusing in on the things that Jesus is preparing to do. Because Jesus came so that we could have life. He is the promised one of God. And just as that crowd celebrated him with all of their flaws and misperceptions, they got it right in that they celebrated the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And we should work to get it right too in celebrating the work and the promised one that God has given us. Let's pray together. Father, I want to say thank you so very much for the promise and the reality of Jesus, the promise of that Messiah. God, it seems like at different times it was a difficult path and a difficult route as you led and as you provided and as you directed the process. But Father, I want to say thank you that you have given us Jesus. That Father, you kept your word. You were faithful to yourself even as others were not faithful to you. Despite others' unfaithfulness, you remained faithful. And you gave us Jesus. And Jesus, I want to say thank you for your willingness to come. For your choice to step into that place that no one else could step into so that we could know forgiveness, so that we could know life, so that we could have our sin issues addressed, and so that we could be restored to the Father, and so that we could spend eternity with you. Jesus, thank you. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen. Genesis 22 is the perfect pointer to what we are going to be celebrating next weekend. I love what God said to Abraham where he said, hey, you are blessed because you did not withhold your son. 
God did not withhold his son on the cross. He sent Jesus as the perfect substitute for you and me. God provided on that day in Genesis the ram to be the substitute. And in the Gospels, we see that God provided his only perfect son to be the substitute when he went up on the cross and the punishment for your sin was placed on Jesus so that if you trust in him, you can be saved. It is a perfect pointer to what we're going to be celebrating this weekend. And if you are here and you haven't believed in Jesus, take time to think about what he did for you. It is not too late to trust in his death and his resurrection to save you from your sin. And if you are here and you have already believed in Jesus, my prayer has been for myself and for you that this week, as we hear parts of the gospel all week, that we will be in awe and excited about the good news, even if it's the thousandth time you've ever heard it. That is my prayer for you. And if you're here and have believed in Jesus, and maybe you need a little extra push to help you reflect more this week on Holy Week, what you can do in your whatever browser you use, there's a free devotional, Your Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. If you just type that in devotional, it'll take you to a, a free download on desiringgod.org, and it has the passages of Holy Week and just little devotionals each day to help you reflect on the beauty of the gospel that we see this week. So that's an extra push. Your sorrow will turn into joy, uh, a free devotional. Uh, but what we're going to do now is we're going to pray for our hearts, for the offering, that as we give people all over Ocean County and around the world will hear the good news how God did not withhold his son to save sinful people like you and me. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you that you, you didn't withhold your perfect son. God, I, I pray for those that do not know you as their Savior, that you will humble their hearts and see that you are their only hope, their only way to you. And I pray, God, for those that do know you. I pray for my own heart that we will never grow tired of hearing the gospel. Help our hearts to be filled with awe and wonder at how you have come to rescue us. Lord, bless this offering so people all over will hear this, this great good news. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen.